other officers told us that the reason it was stopped was because a priest had become a prime suspect. On this week's episode, reporters Dan Herbeck and Lou Michelle reveal possible suspects in Monsignor O'Connor's murder. The names you're about to hear have remained hidden for decades until now. And don't get me started on the suspects' backgrounds. They might shock you. Here's my interview with Dan and Lou. To start things off here, it's about 10 days after Monsignor O'Connor is discovered dead and Lewandowski becomes a suspect. Uh, if you could, whoever wants to tackle this, let's just go into what kind of guy the Reverend Lewandowski was. He has quite a colorful description from many people. So whoever wants to summarize who this guy was, have at it. Father John Lewandowski was a, a rough, vulgar man and not the type of a guy that you would typically expect to become a priest. He was a former professional he was a former professional wrestler. Uh, he was a rough, big, powerfully built guy who liked to boast to young people about the fact that he was a professional wrestler. He used to go to bowling alleys with teenage boys, and uh, people would sometimes complain about the vulgar language that they would use, and they'd be wrestling on the floor of a of the bowling alleys, which I think is a strange thing to do. And later on, he would be accused of molesting a number of boys. Um, during the police investigation into the murder, as police uh, were, were digging into Father John Lewandowski's past, they were hearing stories about him and very inappropriate conduct with, with, with young boys. And he would also tell he would ask young boys very personal questions about their sexual experiences. And he would also um, said to a number of boys who we have interviewed now, they're in their 70s, who said that uh, Father John would tell them that he knew all kinds of wrestling moves that he could snap their neck and kill them in a second. Just not your typical priest by any means. When you were reading through these reports, the the grown men that you did end up interviewing, uh, their names were listed in the police reports from 1966, right? Some of them were, yes. Again, whoever wants to take over this, how did you guys feel about reaching out to these now grown men who had these accusations? I mean, it's been decades. It's really unearthing terrible things that yes. likely happened to them, right? So how, how was that going into well, that? Lou and I have both covered a lot of these lawsuits that are filed against uh, alleged child molesters by grown men who this happened to decades ago. And we're always very careful approaching somebody like that. Every one of these people, uh, I reach them through their lawyers. And the way I handle it, I do not push, push people to talk to me if they want to talk about their experiences. I give them that opportunity, and if they don't, I I thank them for their time, and I apologize for bothering them, and I never, ever would push any victim of a sexual abuse uh, to try and get an interview out of them. Interestingly enough, Nat, I would say over the years, more than half were willing to talk to me. Usually, as long as you leave their names out of the paper and promise you will not publish their names, 
they want to get this off their chest and they, they want the abuser to be exposed. When somebody in authority, in particular a priest, uh, whom you're raised to think is, you know, God's ambassador, his emissary on, on planet Earth, um, assaults a young person, it really cuts to, I guess, the best way to say it, to the cuticle of the soul. Yeah, it, it, it hurts deeply, you know, because you, you're dealing with a person's sexuality. And these boys that Lewandowski is accused of molesting were, were young and really didn't know a lot, couldn't think for themselves on this, on that type of a plane and were literally abused. And he threatened, the, you know, he actually made threats to them, you know, implied threats that if you tell anybody, I'm going to kill you. And so, you know, this is the worst of the worst. And it, actually, our story, when we were investigating the Monsignor's death, took this turn. It was an unexpected turn. We don't know why Lewandowski was cited as a or targeted as a suspect, but uh, perhaps it was the proximity. We're, we're just not sure. But just as mysteriously as his name comes up as a suspect, it just as mysteriously disappears as well. But in this uh, side path that the story took us, he was never arrested or anything like that, even though the police interviewed several of these of his alleged victims and that they never did anything on that. And that was startling. And there were a total of 78 credibly accused priests in the Buffalo Catholic Diocese, including Lewandowski, and none of them were charged. And this is happening at a time in the church's history in the 1960s, when everything's, for lack of a better description, going hot and heavy with transferring these molester priests to different dioceses, often down in the southern tier or the sticks. And, uh, but in Lewandowski's case, he was sent to, to another, he was such a special case that he wasn't even sent to some remote corner of the Buffalo diocese. He was sent to a, a remote corner of the Adirondacks in the Ogdensburg diocese. So that really says something special about uh, this serial, this alleged serial molester. And that just to, just to add one thing, one of these men who I interviewed, one of the alleged victims of Lewandowski, he's well into his 70s now, and this man was sobbing as he was telling me what happened to him. And he said, please, Mr. Herbeck, please keep your promise of, of keeping my name to yourself because I'm telling you things now that I've never told my own wife or kids. Oh, my gosh. How brave. Wow. He was a teenager. In, in one situation, he took, uh, I'm not sure if this is the same person that Dan is referring to, but he took a, f a group of boys, including a 14-year-old, to a cabin across the Peace Bridge into Ontario, Canada, and he slept with the boy, and the boy curled up into a fetal position so that uh, Lewandowski couldn't get his claws into him, so to speak. And then when they were coming back, 
as soon as they came over the international boundary, the Peace Bridge, the boy jumped out of the car on the west side of Buffalo and he, he got away from them as soon as he could. And ran all the way home. Yeah. And that's that's a pretty far distance from the west side up to Black Rock section of Buffalo. You know, it's a few miles. I don't the, blame him. The it's desperation. The, it's the stuff of nightmares. Yeah, a predator through and through. Uh, so it seems and just something I want to touch on really quick, and we're going to double back to this is that uh, he and another priest uh, were these were credible, or these have been deemed credible accusations in, in yes, the years since, the right? Okay, okay. And, and, and we'll get to that. But uh, just just to backtrack a second here. Uh, Lewandowski, for the awful character that he is and all of these things, this kind of rap sheet of things that he's been accused of, uh, it was really no secret. He ends up at Bemis Point, right? This mansion. Correct. Okay. So uh, can you guys go into what this mansion is all about? About 70 miles south of Buffalo, there's a beautiful lake called Chautauqua Lake, and there's a little village very picturesque village called Bemis Point. And one of the prettiest properties in that whole area is a beautiful mansion, the former James Selden mansion, which sits right on Chautauqua Lake. It's a luxurious mansion that, that was designed to look like one of Winston Churchill's former homes in England. And the, the, the Buffalo Catholic Diocese for a number of years uh, used it as what they called a retreat house. But in one of the Buffalo police reports that we received about the murder, they called it a penal house for wayward priests. And we do know that John Lewandowski and another priest who was later listed by the Catholic diocese as being uh, legitimately accused of being a molester, they were among the priests that were being confined in that luxurious mansion. And some of the victims in the Buffalo area who were victimized by priests felt, told us in our interviews that they felt this was a very inappropriate place uh, to hold uh, molesters. In fact, one, one man said to me, uh, the, ga the guy who tried to molest me was sent to a mansion on the waterfront when anybody else who did that would be sent to prison. It was lakefront property. There were tennis courts. The mansion, in fact, now is for sale for approximately $6 million. It's on the market again. The police viewed it as a, 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 a penal facility for wayward priests, but it was more like a, a, a retreat house. And that's how the diocese wants to to portray it, a retreat house. They're denying that uh, that it was a place for molester priests. But the facts speak for themselves in the police reports. Which we're going to get into right now. So you guys have beautifully set up a luxurious scene. Strange place to pop these guys. And it's even stranger that Leo Donovan himself goes the 70 miles to interview Lewandowski. Could you guys go into that? I mean, one of the lines out of this article is uh, the six-page account of this interview dated March 26, 1966, is among the most fascinating reports in this whole O'Connor file. So whoever wants to talk about that sit-down, anything that really popped out at you when you were reading through these pages? Leo Donovan was the longtime chief of the Buffalo Homicide 
squad. He was the lead murder investigator in the city of Buffalo police. He had a large squad of very experienced detectives. And usually he would send his people out to investigate and interview witnesses or potential suspects. It would be very unusual for Leo Donovan to go and do an interview himself and especially to drive 70 miles. But he did go down there to interview John Lewandowski. Uh, He went with one of his sergeants, John Rapp. They questioned Lewandowski, and uh, Leo Donovan wrote in his report that he did not think Lewandowski was being truthful to them. He described him as report as a muscle man, boy lover. Those are the phrases that he used in his report. And He also said that uh, he and the other priests there were, even though the diocese called it a retreat house, were were pretty much confined there and could not leave there without special permission, did not have any money, did not have any transportation. But And Leo said it would have been very difficult for Lewandowski to, to get out of there and go to Buffalo to commit a murder unless he had help and cooperation, which... It's possible that if he did do it, he did have help and cooperation. We'll we'll never know. But Leo Donovan said that uh, Lewandowski was also a very rough character and that he he didn't like effeminate people. And and before Leo and this other detective, John Rapp, arrived there, it, it was a feat to just set the whole thing up. The, the detective bureau was repeatedly calling the Bemis Point Penal Institute. And Reverend James Cahill, who ran the place, wasn't answering his phone. They actually had to call the state police barracks down there. And a trooper had to go over and tell them to take the call from the Buffalo police. And only after that did Cahill answer his phone. And, and when they get there, Lewandowski is reluctant to have his to be fingerprinted. And uh, but they said that the the detectives were ready for that. They said that uh, that the office of Bishop James McNulty okayed the fingerprinting. And yet there's no files in the diocese referring to any of this. So, but I don't think the police would lie or Leo Donovan would lie in, a, in his uh, six-page report that uh, he did not get permission from the diocese for the fingerprinting. So there, there were these roadblocks. And when they get there, uh, Father Cahill you know, gives them one of these, always, always me. I'm sitting on this time bomb here with the with several priests who have problems. So he portrays it much differently that setting than does uh, the diocese. That it was a place of retreat and discernment for priests to go to figure out where they were in their vocation. And a little bit of a clarification thing that leads us up to now. When you talk to the Buffalo Diocese spokesperson, he said the plausibility of Lewandowski or any other priests escaping away and getting into trouble would have been very unlikely, yada, yada, yada. But going off of kind of what you just said, now did he speak to it being a penal institution retreat place or did he kind of just move past that? I mean, was there any acknowledgement? 
the, the Buffalo Diocese spokesman, Joe Martone, says that there is nothing in Buffalo Diocese records to indicate that this was anything other than a retreat house. Uh, but at the same time, he said that the priests that were there at the time of the murder were, were confined there. They were not able to leave. And he also said that the, uh, that the head of the retreat house was sending regular progress reports to the bishop's office about John Lewandowski and the progress he was making down there. At the same time, though, he said that there was no record of the uh, retreat house director informing the bishop's office that homicide detectives had come down there to interview him about a murder of a fellow priest. Now, if if you're sending regular progress reports to the bishop's office about the progress of your of the priest you're watching, you would certainly think he would mention in this report that, oh, by the way, uh, there were two homicide detectives here yesterday interviewing Father Lewandowski about about the murder of Monsignor O'Connor. I mean, Joe Martone is just going on the records that he has available to him. I understand that. This is nearly 60 years ago. But when I asked him about that, he just said, well, I have no comment. I'm just telling you the, giving you the best information I have based on what records I've been able to find. Okay, fair enough. It just seems confusing. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe. I don't think it's beyond the realm of feasibility to consider that perhaps the diocese at the time was laundering its files so that this dirty laundry wouldn't exist for one day when there might be a second look at it, as is what's happening right now in this podcast. And it's interesting that Donovan said that, Leo Donovan had said that, you know, this is a seasoned investigator, and he describes Lewandowski as a hater who was not being completely truthful uh, in answering his questions. And But one thing that Lewandowski said... <laughs> which could be perceived as trying to throw the police off the, the track of finding the killer, is he speculates that a motorcycle group may have had something to do with O'Connor's death. And that sent the police on another goose chase that didn't, uh, you know, investigating this group at the time called the Road Vultures, and nothing ever came of that. You know, so it's like a Lewandowski, you know, is denying that, he knew Monsignor O'Connor, and yet he's saying, well, hey, maybe a motorcycle group had something to do with it. Uh, yeah, Blame just, the biker gang. Yeah, yeah right. So, it's like the shiftiest thing you could come up with. Like, right. What? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Um, next up here. So speaking of Lewandowski, and now we're going to get a little bit into Howard Slack. Uh, we're in Article 13 now. They were named as child monsters in the Child Victims Act lawsuit. Lawsuits, plural. Uh, this is a 2018 Child Victims Act lawsuits. This is brought up a couple times. Uh, for those who are not familiar with this, uh, would it be all right if you give the long and short of what this is referring to? A few years ago, the New York State Legislature uh, decided that something had to be done about uh, people who were victimized, not only by priests, but by other people, uh, child molesters, many years ago, and had always kept the secret. 
to themselves. So they decided to pass the Child Victims Act in New York State, which allowed people to file lawsuits for things that happened many, many years ago, which normally would have been not allowed because of the statute of limitations. So this prompted a huge, uh, a huge number of lawsuits to be filed in Western New York and throughout the state against former priests, teachers, Boy Scout leaders, and many, many other people who worked with children. And in Western New York, the largest number of these um, lawsuits, I'm sad to say, were filed against the Buffalo Catholic Diocese for alleged actions of priests who molested children. And John Lewandowski and another priest who was being kept down at the Bemis Point, uh, Father Slack, the two of them were both named in these law- lawsuits, and ultimately uh, Slack and Lewandowski would be named by the diocese itself as being credibly accused child molesters. Okay, and then just uh, for my clarifications purposes here, Michael McKeating was named, and uh, he alleged that priest tried to molest him when he was a teen. Was that in regards to Lewandowski or to Father Slack? Mike McKeating, uh, who used to be a reporter at this newspaper and also used to be a Catholic deacon in the Buffalo Diocese, he alleged that uh, Father Slack tried to molest him. Uh, he says that he, he fought off the attempt and jumped out, at the, out of the priest's car, but he was very upset by it. And that's something that is... Uh, stuck with him and bothered him till this day. He's now in his late 70s. He was the one that told me he was very upset to hear that Slack was living in in luxury on the shores of Lake Chautauqua. One of the things, uh, when we did speak with the owner of the mansion now, she said that it was, she believed that the arrangements was like dormitory style on the floors of the upper floors of the mansion, you could see where walls had once been placed from discoloration on the floor. So I'm not sure if they had their own separate rooms or it was a dormitory style uh, situation for them, but there's no question it was a beautiful English style, English Tudor style mansion. And uh, another thing Cahill said that these priests had no money or transportation. So with Donovan saying that they, he didn't rule out the possibility that Lewandowski played a role in Monsignor O'Connor's homicide, but it would, ha- would have had to have been split-second timing. Somebody coming down, getting him, bringing him up to Buffalo, and then taking him back down later that overnight on March 13th, 1966. The big part of all of this. The investigation abruptly ends. We've said it a million times in this podcast and however many episodes that we've had. The last article that we're going to be talking about today, you are able to speak to a handful of different voices who are still alive and have some pretty spooky stuff to share. Uh, First one being long-retired detective Gregory Simonian. He kind of speaks to all hands on deck, homicide detectives everywhere from different departments, really all in, casting that wide net on trying to figure out what happened to Monsignor O'Connor. 
and he, this is how this article begins from you guys, is that he had mentioned that they heard that homicide detectives had begun focusing on a priest as a suspect shortly before the murder probe was shut down. Uh, when you're talking to him, what was that interaction like when he brings up this possible priest that could have been involved in this? Greg Simonian is one of the most respected, honest people to have served in the police department in many, many years. If you asked any cop, about Greg Simonian, they would they would give you the highest possible grades to him as being an honest cop. He said that he was he was working in one of the precincts. He was a young detective at the time. He was assigned to work on the O'Connor homicide because this was the biggest case in the city. It was uh, the city was in an uproar over this. Cops from all over the city were being detailed to work with the homicide squad at that time. He said that he uh, worked on the case for a couple of weeks, and then all of a sudden, he was told, go back to your normal assignment. We're done. And he was he was thinking, oh, well, they, maybe they made an arrest. But no, there was no arrest. They were just stopping the investigation. And he did try to find out what happened. He was never told why they ended the investigation. Other officers told us that the reason it was stopped was because a priest had become a prime suspect. Yeah, that leads me right into this uh, introduction to Richard Kubiniak. How did you guys get in contact with him? I know he was friends with a now past detective who was on this case, but he seems to just pop up and have some more information. Richard Kubiniak is a Buffalo lawyer, and uh, when I was first started researching this case back in 2018, one of my sources said, you should talk to Kabiniak because he had a conversation with Ed Gorski, who was one of the lead investigators in the murder case. Kabiniak, I called him. He's well into his 80s, but he was kind enough to tell me what he knew. He said Gorski was a very good friend of his. And he asked Gorski one time, whatever happened to that um, that case with the murdered priest. Gorski told him, we were focusing on a priest as a suspect. We were about to interview a Monsignor about this murder, and we were told to shut down the investigation. Yet another thing here, we have 85-year-old attorney William Carey, who, wait, he, he, he brings up a name, a specific name about a Monsignor that was being looked at. And We'll get into that in a second, but we just spent the majority of this podcast talking about Father Lewandowski and the awful character that he was. But now we're we're not talking about Lewandowski here with what Attorney Carey brings up. When this was mentioned to you, and I'll let you guys tell the story, you got to bring me through like your mind's process when you heard about this, this name, this new name. Lewandowski's name kept coming up. And Donovan and the other detective went to the trouble of going down to the retreat house. So that's where we were focused. But in an interview with Mike McKeating, the former deacon, Mike went on to become a public official as well. He was a lawyer after he left the Buffalo News. He was at a party one time with Leo Donovan. And Mike went up to Leo and said, I said, how come you never found the killer of Monsignor O'Connor? And he, without missing a beat, he said, oh, we did. We knew who did it. We were about to bring him in, and 
we were told to close the case. I said, who told you that? And he just went like this, pointing upward. So we already knew that Lewandowski had been questioned. So this introduced the fact that there was someone else they were looking at. And Leo, in this conversation, pointed upward with his pointer finger, indicating higher ups had shut down the case. When he was asked why it was shut down. Right. He pointed to the ceiling. Dan and I started digging into who was on the staff of the district attorney's office back in the 60s. And we spoke to, there's only two or three left. And uh, one of them directed us to Bill Carey. In, in our interviews with Bill Carey, he's one of the last surviving assistant district attorneys who was around at that time back in the 60s. He said, I'm 85 years old. I have nothing to lose anymore. I'm going to tell you that Leo Donovan told me that it was Monsignor Kelleher that they were looking at as the individual who killed Monsignor O'Connor. Now, Monsignor Franklin Kelleher is a former wrestler and boxer. He ran the working boys home on the west side of Buffalo, and he was also the unofficial prefect for discipline in the Buffalo Catholic Diocese. He was Bishop McNulty's go-to man when a priest would get in trouble, whether it was for drinking, getting drunk, drunken driving, or uh, going to a prostitute and getting busted, or for sexual picadellos with, with uh, gay encounters. And he would always call in Monsignor Franklin Kelleher to handle it, who was very handy with his fists. And uh, Bill Carey said that Leo told him that uh, you have to quiet down the case. And that's when the case stopped. It was right about that time. And Leo, just to back up for a split second, did meet with the with Bishop McNulty, according to a conversation between Richard Kubeniak and the late Eddie Gorski. A, de uh, a detective sergeant in the, in the homicide squad. And Leo had told Eddie that uh, he felt that he, that, he, that he had asked the bishop five questions and he felt the, the bishop had lied to him. Just to make sure here, you guys wouldn't have heard about Kellier without having talked to Bill Carey. That's when everything stopped, when they were going to go to to Kelleher. And Kelleher had a reputation of being violent. He, he claimed that somebody at his summer home in Canada across the, the bridge from us had tried to run him over and Kelleher yanked him out of the car. It was a neighbor dispute, allegedly. Kelleher yanked him out of the car and popped him in the jaw and broke his jawbone. And uh, there was this is back in the late 1950s. There's an AP wire story about it, about this priest who, you know, took on this guy who tried to run him over and, you know, nearly, you know, really roughed him up. And Kelleher, in his role as the unofficial disciplinarian for the diocese, was known to beat up other priests. A detective who I interviewed who would not let me use his name a retired detective, told me that one time when he was a young detective, he was told, he and his partner were told to pick up a priest and deliver him to Monsignor Kelleher's rectory. 
So he said, we picked up this priest. We drove him to Kelleher's rectory. We delivered him to the front door. Kelleher opened the door and he yelled out, you again. He grabbed the priest by the scruff of the neck, threw him on the floor and started kicking him. And my uh, detective source, I asked him, well, what did you do? He said, well, we got the heck out of there. This was this was not our business. This is how things were handled. He didn't know what the priest had done or why he was being sent to Kelleher. He just remembers what he saw. And I asked him, well, didn't you, didn't you try and find out what this was all about? He said, no, you didn't ask questions. You did what you were told. And Bill Carey had relatives who were Catholic priests. Bill came from South Buffalo, Irish Catholic area in the city. And it, it was widely known that Ke- it was no secret that Kelleher was the disciplinarian. And Bill heard that directly from his relatives who were in the priesthood. So that really adds some backing to that claim that Kelleher was the, the killer. This is just nuts. This is nuts. There is no mention at all in any of the Buffalo police reports that we were given of Monsignor Kelleher, not one word about him. In the same breath, we'll say there are reports that are missing. Yes. Right, right, right. Which, if people have been good listeners the last few episodes, they would know that. That's a strange thread in all of this. I I just, I say this is nuts because it's like the main thing here is trying to figure out who killed Monsignor O'Connor, right? But let's pretend that element of it doesn't exist. It's all these little things of, I, I I mean, I can't picture my priest of my parish beating somebody's, like, it's just like, what? Like, that's how things were handled back then? Like, just, well, just these details that you guys garnered alone, and it's like, what? It's hard to believe that things were handled that way, and it's disturbing. But if you talked to veteran, longtime retired priests who were around back then, they will tell you that priests who did things that were were wrong or were frowned upon, were scared to death of Monsignor Keller. This man was a former uh, boxing champion and a former professional wrestler uh, who had called himself the Masked Marvel. He had, he had wrestled professionally for a number of years and had quite a following, and he was always wearing a mask. One, one night during one of his matches, somebody ripped the mask off him, and people said, oh, that's that's Monsignor Kelleher. Well, the, the bishop at the time ordered him to stop wrestling professionally because he didn't think that was a, a good image for priests in Buffalo. You, you don't say. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's, it's bizarre. Comedic, like what? Yeah. And strangely enough, when he died, he had an estate worth over a million dollars. In 1985. About- in 1985. He was 84, I believe, at the time. Yeah. He lived in a house that was very upscale in in one of the uh, Delaware Park neighborhoods surrounding the park. But he did he leave the priesthood? No, no. He he retired. Priests retire generally at 75. He had his own house. I think he may have inherited some money, but it, it was a it was a substantial amount of money that he he left and he didn't get along with some members of his family according to the will he was from massachusetts originally and he 
So you let's just do a juxtaposition here. You have Monsignor O'Connor in his will urging forgiveness if somebody took his life in a violent manner. And in in Monsignor Kelleher's will, I don't want money going to these members of my family. A real dichotomy there of two different priests. Thank you for bringing that up. If I could add, just to give a little on the other side of the story, one of the, a a well-known police officer in Buffalo who Lou and I have known and respected for many years, he said that, uh, that Monsignor Kelleher was a very good man and that he was very dedicated to these, uh, boys at the, at the, uh, the working boys home in Buffalo and, and the boys who were boxers. Uh, he turned a lot of their lives around. He said that Monsignor Kelleher was one of the biggest positive influences on my life, and he dedicated his life to to helping me and a lot of other teenage boys who had come from broken homes and had all kinds of problems. And I, I should add that we never heard anything about Monsignor Kelleher ever being accused of molesting a child. I think that should be mentioned. Yeah, definitely. He was a no-nonsense type of father figure to those boys, and but also a no-nonsense priest who, <laughs> the right person to be a disciplinarian. Tim Drury, uh, who was a homicide investigator, not at that time, but who had been around the, the halls of justice for many years, kept urging the Buffalo News to, to take a, a deeper second look at Monsignor O'Connor's murder. He felt it was a cover-up to hide a scandal in the church. He felt it was a scandal that there was a cover-up. Judge Tim Drury, he's retired now. He was also a former homicide prosecutor with the DA's office and had worked with Leo Donovan and his squad on many cases. He knew all the people we're talking about. My favorite part of this is the little intricacies and these all these small characters and it all adds up to something of importance obviously Dan and I do believe that the Buffalo Police Department at that time really threw everything they had at it and that they would not have stopped but the whole overview of Buffalo the power structure that's for another podcast That's it for now. Thanks to Dan and Lou from Buffalo News. You'll hear more from them next week on this Who Killed the Monsignor series. Make sure you subscribe to Late Edition Crime Beat Chronicles wherever you get your podcasts. See you later.